don't take life too seriously. Recognize that everything is going to be just fine, particularly because we all run SaaS businesses. The beauty of SaaS is if you're doing 20,000 MRR and your churn is below 5%, you have escape velocity. Like you're not going out of business tomorrow. You might, you might not even be going out of business in two to three years. You have that time. So think about it, pause, then recognize strategically how you can make those next moves. And also too, don't think that you have to work 14 hours a day. Hi, and welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show, brought to you by SaaSDoc. I'm your host, Alex Sumer, and on this week's podcast, I talk with Leon Martin, CEO and founder of Time Doctor and Staff.com, and organizer of Running Remote, a conference devoted to leaders and executives from companies with remote work culture. We chat about hiring well and creating a healthy and strong culture remotely. Time Doctor measures remote employee productivity and staff.com acts as a two-sided marketplace for hiring remote workers. And Liam eats his own dog food. Both organizations are entirely remote organizations with 100 employees spread between 26 countries worldwide. Certainly some challenges there that we can learn from. Liam started Time Doctor back in 2012 when very few companies were making the move to go to a fully remote organization. But Liam had a perfectly good reason, the weather in Canada which he really wanted to escape from, certainly in winter time. To make remote work, Liam has put in a lot of processes in place and has had to accept the reality that VC investors would not agree to fund him with such a spread organization. Liam and his business partner bootstrapped the company, which is currently north of 5 million in ARR. Listen on to here, what is the key ingredient to make a remote organization effective? Process is really important. So. Small, remote, small businesses that are remote have to become big businesses very quickly. And what I mean by that, and it, that might scare a couple people, but it actually ends up being a really net positive. You have to get all your processes and procedures in order. You know, we create documentation for all of those different activities inside of the business. And then we basically put it up on a wiki or we put it up on Google Docs. You know, you can, very, you can create these procedures very quickly and easily and they cost almost nothing to be able to digitize. And then you literally put them up in the cloud and then you'd say, okay, here is what I need you to do. Here is a very well broken down operational procedure. How to create the right processes. I call it the four Ds, discover, design, deploy, and debug. So you first discover the process. What do you actually need to do in basically putting together this process? The second step is you actually design it. So I have inside of that the rule of three, which is, the first time you do something, always do it yourself. The second time you do something, make sure that you're thinking about process documentation as you do it. And then the third time, you need to actually write it down. You need to actually process out that document. And the reason why people should do it on the third time and not the hundredth time is when you've done something a hundred times, you lose all of the small details inside of that process. One unexpected and eye-opening tactic for hiring a healthier organization. Uh, one thing that we've implemented recently, which has been very <laughs> eye-opening for us, is we've removed the names of candidates at the top. Um, so therefore removing, and like we don't know their gender, we don't know their racial status, anything, anything like that. We don't have that information. And we've actually ended up having a very interesting change to our hiring procedure. It's been a lot more diversified. Wherever in the world you are based, 
SASTOT will be landing on your continent in 2019, unless you're in Antarctica. But sorry, you know, just like Liam, I'm not a fan of thumbs falling off freezing weather. Have a look on sastop.com forward slash events and pick your destination from Sao Paulo to Hong Kong and San Francisco to Sydney will be within a not too long flight from you. So join us to learn from experienced SAS practitioners such as Liam, who are open to sharing their pitfalls, connecting with peers and potential partners and VCs if you're looking to raise. Have fun also, which Liam argues is the most important thing to stay sane on this journey. Now on with the show. Welcome to the SAS Revolution Show. I'm your uh, host, uh, Alex Thuma. Uh, delighted to be on the show. Uh, oh, joining me today is uh, is Liam Martin. Uh, welcome to the show, Liam. Thanks for having me, Alex. No, it's a uh, it, it's a pleasure. Actually, uh, um, you know, sort of almost returning the favour, but by coincidence, uh, as uh, <laughs> as uh, uh, I was uh, on on your kind of podcast stroke video uh, sort of recently, which will probably be live by the time this uh, this goes out. Yeah. Um, when we we connected at SAS North, uh, I think that was like end of November, right? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago or months. I feel like it was a couple of weeks ago, but it's probably months ago. Yeah. Uh, and, and Liam, so I, I introduced you, but I didn't introduce, uh, you know, kind of like who, who you are. Um, sure. Like, please, please tell the audience, uh, who is Liam Martin? I'm a human being living on planet Earth, more specifically in Canada. And uh, I'm not currently in Canada right now, but... Uh, run two tech companies, co-founded two tech companies, Time Doctor and Staff.com. And those are tools to be able to help manage remote teams. And we also run a conference, which is a bit of a passion project on my end, which is why we connected, uh, called Running Remote, which is how to build and scale large remote teams. And other than that, I'm uh, in Boston this week. I'm in Miami next week. I'm in, in Mexico for the next six weeks. So I am remote uh, as a business. Our employees are in 28 different countries at this point. We've got approximately 100 people. And that's what I'm very passionate about, building remote businesses and being able to stay out of the cold uh, when you're Canadian. Uh, very cool. Uh, was the Canadian weather a factor into you deciding to build remote companies? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There we go. <laughs> End of podcast. Yeah, uh, there we go. There we go. Uh, we got to it. But um, no, very cool. So a, a few things there. So you're running two SaaS companies and a conference. Are you crazy? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I think I'm just an entrepreneur. Uh, so I think probably a lot of people ask me those types of questions. And if I were to go back all the way to the beginning, in reality, what I would have done is not run staff.com. So we started with time doctor and then we just saw an opportunity in the market. We saw a really good opportunity to be able to engage in the, in the, um, I guess the, the peer to peer remote work platform uh, industry and we got in as a two-sided marketplace with staff.com recognizing that going all the way back that was a bad decision mm-hmm. and i shouldn't have started that business uh we should have actually stuck with time doctor i think we would have come out a lot uh more successful than we are now even though we are pretty successful as a company so um i think for a lot of people that are looking to start something up it's uh I gave a talk on this actually about a month ago. Don't start more than one thing until you've really hit, I would probably say 
at least a couple million in ARR before you can really move on to the next thing and make sure that that other thing doesn't require your full focus, which is probably (laughs) almost nothing. Like I would say, don't start a second thing. Uh, It was a bad decision for me and it looked like a really good decision at the beginning because there was a fantastic opportunity for us, but realizing going all the way back, it was a really bad decision. And running remote is in essence a passion project. So I've literally have, we have one full-time employee and we have three part-time employees that run that project. And I literally spend maybe two hours a week working on it. And I've been very disciplined to make sure that that's compartmentalized. And there's someone that's like the CEO of that project and we're simply funding it with Time Doctor and staff. Gotcha. So, uh, so staff.com, the two-sided marketplace, uh, Time Doctor, the, uh, the SaaS company. Uh, right. The tool uh, to be able to manage those yeah. employees. Gotcha. Uh, and uh, sorry, did you say like how long, like wh- when did uh, you, uh, when were these companies uh, in- incepted? Like how long have you been running them? 2012. Uh, we started uh, May of 2012. That's when mm. we kind of opened our doors and started selling. And um, Time Doctor actually was, very successful right out of the gate. So it was the software that managed remote employees. And at that point, there really wasn't anything out on the market. Now there's about 20 or 30 competitors to what we currently do. But um, at that point, no one was really measuring uh, employee productivity remotely. So that's what we handled. And then we thought a great addition would be to build in a two-sided marketplace inside of that company. And what we Mm -hmm. discovered was, number one, there's secret churn inside of a two-sided marketplace that you can't really discover because your actual customer that wants to buy that person is going to poach them eventually. And the business was, in essence, recurring income off of that direct interaction. So there was a lot of secret churn that we didn't really understand the true answer towards. And that was, that was one big difference or one big problem inside of that business. The second one was our customers that were using Time Doctor, they were running two-sided marketplaces. And they were pretty pissed off that we were running a two-sided marketplace. We were, in essence, biting the hand that was feeding us. So for those reasons, we actually... Uh, pivoted that into an enterprise version of Time Doctor. So staff.com is for large-scale insights into work productivity. And Mm -hmm. then Time Doctor is, if you have less than 100 people, Time Doctor is the place for you. If you have more than 100 people, staff.com is the place for you. That's, in essence, the way we run it now. Gotcha. Makes sense. And and in in terms of revenue uh, or like any metrics, headline metrics you can share? Yeah, we're uh, approximately 5 million a year and we've got uh, almost 100 people right now, as I Mm -hmm. said before, in about 23, 24 different countries. So we are fundamentally remote. That's our core DNA, what we really care about, um, kind of helping the world come to recognize that remote work is a great business model to be able to build your business with. And bootstraps as well, right? Yes. Uh, that was a lesson that we learned from previous businesses. My business partner and I both funded the business and uh, we realized that VC money just, it allows you to grow faster, but then you do very quickly lose control. Mm-hmm. And I, in my opinion, and I'm sure that there's plenty of examples of people that have been on your podcast that have taken the opposite route and it's been very successful for them. But uh, I know when we first looked to get funding for our business, they said, oh, this is great. Your numbers are great. You know what? Uh, I, I want to give you five, $10 million right now. All that you have to do is just bring all of these remote employees to 
Boston or all of these road employees to Palo Alto or to Toronto or to New York. And then I would ask them, but the tool is to be able to distribute remote work. Like that's what we fundamentally care about. And we're eating our own dog food as a company. Don't you think that that would be a bad message to communicate? It's changed now with remote work. There are a lot of remote companies that are being paid attention to um, very seriously. But eight years ago, I mean, we were, it was the concept of working remotely and building a business was nuts to a lot of VCs. So for that reason, we were just out of the VC world. Yeah, no, definitely from, from those sort of like time horizons, you could see that, you know, eight years ago, uh, remote work was still like not a thing that was really kind of like widely, I think, uh, accepted. And uh, definitely, I mean, we had that conversation and we, so we don't need to, um, you, you know, go back into it. Uh, I'm sure it's, it's going to be on, um, you, you know, to your podcast just about the, you know, where is remote work going and yes. uh, like, where is it now? Um, so we, we can probably link to that, I'm, I'm sure, in the, sh- in, in the show notes. But uh, so great background there into, into you, uh, into your companies. Um, and um, I think, like, uh, for now, actually what we want to talk about is just the, the topic of remote work um, uh, uh, necessarily rather than um, your uh, perspective sort of businesses or respective businesses uh, um, and, and, and really kind of um, get into like, you know, how to hire for remote work and, and, and culture. The, these are kind of things that are, I think are super interesting. We, we've not necessarily talked about too much on uh, on this podcast and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm certain you've got some, uh, you, you know, good insights uh, uh, around that. So, um, so you, you, you eat your own dog food, 100, um, 100 people uh, across 28 countries, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, should we start in terms of some of the challenges? I mean, I don't know if it's a negative like, thing to necessarily start on, but actually, obviously, you can turn into um, you, you know, some, some sort of great lessons there. But like, generally, what, what are the challenges around scaling you know, company remotely, uh, for any kind of SaaS companies that are out there that are listening, that are you, you know maybe at the the, the beginning of uh, a, a path of choosing to become a remote business, uh, or, or maybe even they're a remote business, but yet you know not really scaling yet. So, sure. uh, what what can you share around that? The, the, uh, some issues that perhaps are, are well known and some not so, not so well known. So I think the biggest one, and it's a very that's a great question because that's the question that we get a lot because we're dealing with people that have two, three, four, five people in their company and they want to get to 50. And what we end up seeing, which is unique to remote work that you don't recognize until you're in remote work is process is really important. So Small, remote, small businesses that are remote have to become big businesses very quickly. And what I mean by that, and it, that might scare a couple of people, but it actually ends up being a really net positive. You have to get all your processes and procedures in order. So I'll give a perfect example. If you were working for me, Alex, then all of a sudden I would literally have a situation where I would say, okay, Alex, I need you to implement ABC and I need you to put up a new blog post. What are the processes for being able to put together that blog post? If you were right next to me, I could actually teach you that information. I could give you the document. But since you are in the UK and I'm in Canada, that becomes a really difficult problem where I can't very quickly communicate and digitize that information, that process, that in essence standard operation procedure, and give it to you. So 
in comparison, what I do now is, you know, we create documentation for all of those different activities inside of the business. And then we basically put it up on a wiki or we put it up on Google Docs. You know, you can very you can create these procedures very quickly and easily, and they cost almost nothing to be able to digitize. And then you literally put them up in the cloud, and then you'd say, okay, here is what I need you to do. Here is a very well broken down operational procedure for you to be able to do that. And what that does for you is at the beginning, yes, you might move a little bit slower, but you now have the framework to go to 100 people, 200 people, 300 people without any problem whatsoever, because you already have that framework in place and you have the discipline that you had at the beginning, which was documenting things and making sure that people know what they're doing inside of the business. Who's creating those operational frameworks? Is this your, I mean, like when you started the business, at what point did you, you implemented them early on thinking about being a big business, but did you have a a COO type person or an operations person or is this you? So it starts with you. Like if you're under five people, it should definitely be the founder of the business that's doing it. And then after that, what you should do is really have your departmental heads responsible for those different processes. So as an example, um, my SEO manager is responsible for all of the different SEO-related documentation, and then he distributes that to the team. And then from that, they actually end up coming back and giving him edits on it. So like, I I have a very simple four-step process that I have everybody follow, which is I call it the four D's, discover, design, deploy, and debug. So you first discover the process. What do you actually need to do in basically putting together this process? The second step is you actually design it. So I have inside of that the rule of three, which is the first time you do something, always do it yourself. The second time you do something, make sure that you're thinking about process documentation as you do it. And then the third time, you need to actually write it down. You need to actually process out that document. And the reason why... People should do it on the third time and not the hundredth time is when you've done something a hundred times, you lose all of the small details inside of that process. That's why, as an example, if you're getting a personal trainer, I wouldn't want a personal trainer that's always been washboard abs and like 220 pounds of muscle. What I really want is someone who was 300 pounds three years ago and is now washboard abs. Because that person understands the pain of that process and understands all the little details and also understands what you're personally going through. So that's the, design, uh, that's the discovery and design stage. Then the third step is the deploy stage. So you literally just deploy that process to the people that work with you. And then what they do is they implement the debug stage. So you need to ask them, and this is very important, particularly if you're dealing with people in Uh, Southeast Asia, there's cultural differences that I don't necessarily want to get into. But in essence, in in Southeast Asia and Americans and kind of Eastern Europeans don't necessarily have this problem, but they won't tell you what's wrong. So they'll only tell you good things about what you're doing. So we usually ask for, give me three ways that I can improve this process document. And that's a very special question to ask to be able to get the feedback that you need. And then you literally just roll through discover, design, deploy, and you redeploy until you have, in essence, a a pretty good process document in place. It doesn't take more than two to three iterations before you've got that process document in place. And then you're up and running. Uh, And actually, and I mean, that sounds really complicated, but there's actually a pretty good cheat code for this. If you go to um, 
the GitLab, literally type in GitLab process document or GitLab playbook. So Dimitri, who is the founder and CTO of GitLab, ended up writing out a 3,200-page Git repository for everything that you can possibly know about GitLab, because GitLab's 350 people and completely remote. So if you want to know uh, how to run, how they run their sales demo, there's a, there's a process document for it. If you want to know um, how many shares you get when you first join the company, there's a process document for that. If you want to know how you should sign your emails, there's a process document for it. It's 3,200 pages. You're a nerd like me. I was up to about four o'clock in the morning the first time I found it. It's really cool. And he says, he encourages people, steal everything in that Git repository. So you can pull all of your standard procedures out of that, edit them a little bit for yourself. And within an afternoon, you'll have a pretty good solid base of how to basically run your business. And uh, I suggest for anyone that's going remote, spend a week working on it and you'll have like a first iteration and then just make sure that people are disciplined about going back to that document. Uh, It feels slow at the beginning, but then once you've got that process in place, there's nothing holding you back from getting to 50, 100, 200, 500 people. Sounds like a, a, a great resource there. So th- thanks for, for sharing that. Uh, I personally don't fancy reading th- 3,200 pages, but uh, I guess if you're, you're building a remote company, um, uh, I, I think it's probably uh, gold dust. Uh, for, for Absolutely. Um, so you've obviously hired now, uh, well, I mean, you have 100 people in the team, you've probably hired more, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so like, how do how like starting from the beginning you know like how do you hire remotely how do you uh, again is it uh, getting these sort of processes in place but what um you, you know what are the the secrets to good hiring you know for remote workers um you know how do you know if uh, if, if candidates are good or not what do you do uh, uh how do you go about hiring remote workers so the first lesson that a lot of people don't really recognize particularly in tech startups and in and i, I would have attach this to SaaS as well, is uh, they don't hire people that actually want to work remotely. So if you had the decision to hire remotely, you'd be amazed at how many people fill out job applications with us. We get into, we shortlist them, they look good, their culture fit seems okay. And then you sit down for a meeting and the guy will say, well, you know, I think that remote work is kind of stupid. Like, I just don't like working remotely. I'm like, oh, oh, great. This <laughs> is super easy. We shouldn't be talking. Yeah. Let's not work with you. You know, there's a lot of people that are out there that have that perspective. And so you need to be able to hire um, culture fit first. So we'll, what will in essence do is, and I'm actually doing a couple more hires right now for my, uh, that are direct reports to me. And we'll do a culture fit first before we end up even looking at the resumes. And that's something that I think you could apply anywhere. I know that Shopify does that as a core tenant of how they run their business. And they're very successful in their hiring. I think they've got one of the highest retention rates of any tech company um, currently right now. And I think it's because they just hire for that right culture fit. So that's the first lesson. And then secondarily, if you want to find these people, I mean, the best platforms that we end up going to, there's there's Upwork, there's TopTal, there's FlexJobs, Nightingale Designs, all those types of sites. But the ones that we use the most are Remote OK and We Work Remotely. And those are job boards specifically for remote positions. Um, so I'd suggest you check out those two. 
before you kind of just proceed with that's where you should be putting your job posts. And then mm-hmm. after you figured out that culture fit, we literally have pretty standard procedures where we'll shortlist candidates. Uh, one thing that we've implemented recently, which has been very <laughs> eye-opening for us, is we've removed the names of candidates at the top. Um, so therefore removing and like we don't know their gender, we don't know their their uh racial status, anything, anything like that. We don't have that information. And we've actually ended up having a very interesting change to our hiring procedure. It's been a lot more diversified since we started doing that. So that's another thing that I would add into that, but shortlist people figure out whether they can do a task, um, give them a small test task. I'm, I'm hiring some more, um, video editors right now. And we gave 12 candidates the same one minute piece of video and we had them all edit it. And then we come back with 12 exactly the same pieces of footage and then see how they all interpret those edits. Then we break that down to a short list of three people, two to three people. And we end up working with those people for a month. And that's probably quite different from how other people would hire because for us, we can afford to be able to have uh, two to three candidates that we've hired for a month. So we pay them mm-hmm. for that first month. And we end up having them work on the same uh, work. And the reason why we do that is you'll find in, I mean, resumes, and you've probably had this problem too, Alex, I'm sure you have, because I think we discussed it. Uh, <laughs> you'll have people that look great on their resume. And then three months later, you're like, whoa, these, this person just can't execute. And execution in tech startups and in anything is probably the most important factor. You can have a fantastic resume, but if you can't actually get the work done, it's a big problem. So that's where we're measuring on execution. And you'd be surprised how often we end up having amazing candidates that look great on paper end up completely collapsing because they just can't execute. And that's why we end up having those two to three people. So we have them working on the same tasks generally. And then from there, they're on a three month kind of, um, uh, not part-time. They're doing full-time work for us. They're the only candidate. And after those three months, then we basically do another meeting with their coworkers and we say, Hey, why should we not hire this person? So it switches from a, why should we hire this person to why should we not make this person full-time? Then after those three months, they end up becoming full-time. So, so for, so for all roles, um, you would have two to three candidates hired to do the same sort of, uh, role for one month and then you make a decision on, yep. okay, we, we, we move with this person. I mean, I've seen that, you know, similarly in some like junior, like, uh, <clears throat> sales sort of roles where you hire an SDR, like you, or you hire two SDRs, you, you know, and you kind of think, well, we've got them for three months on probation. We'll see which one works the hardest and we'll keep them on. Um, I, I haven't seen that necessarily, you, you know, in, uh, other high level, it's, it's not going to work for high level. No. I mean, if you're hiring a sales rep, if you're hiring a junior dev, if you're hiring a customer support rep, mm-hmm. this is where we have that procedure. If I'm hiring a director of support, it's a much longer conversation. And to be honest with you, we've almost hired almost exclusively internally for those positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we end up working with somebody for two, three years. And you say to themselves, man, you know, they, they've got the experience and the other person is moving to another position or something like that. Then we'll, we'll usually hire internally, um, from those positions. It's, I don't know. And this is different from other tech startups, obviously bringing someone in 
to be able to lead that department is difficult uh, because we end up having, there'll always be two, three people out of a team of 10 that thought that they were going to be that person. And then you'll end up having tension where, okay, well that we ended up bringing someone else in that was completely alien to that group. Um, I haven't figured out how to solve that. So up until this point, we're basically hiring internally, but um, we have not, uh, if you're hiring for high level people, I would definitely not follow the same procedure because you just can't. Gotcha. And what about um, then experience in terms of like when you're hiring somebody, uh, is it, do you look for somebody that has worked remotely before? Is that, um, you know, a prerequisite? Uh, so you know that they can just kind of get in, they've done it before, or, or do you often take a chance, you know, if, if somebody doesn't have that experience? And how often does that work out if they don't have that experience? So it's not a prerequisite, uh, and it is something that we've seen positive and negative kind of experiences on. Uh, ideally, if they have that, if they have remote experience, it's kind of a cherry on top. But if you want to hire anybody that's over forty, uh, it gets really difficult. So, you know, if you're talking about a twenty-five-year-old, they probably had some type of remote experience, or they at least understand how to interact with Zoom. Mm. <laughs> uh, but um, older people is a bit of a different uh, different issue. So, we've we, there's actually a really great talk. Uh, that was at Running Remote that's on our website, if you want to check it out, about how GitHub reprograms people that don't have any remote work experience but have been in the workforce for 20 years. They have, like, an actual program to get those people into remote work. So there's an onboarding procedure for them. So I would generally, if you're going to hire remotely, I'd be biased towards hiring younger people because they just get it and they understand it better. Um, if you've already got 10 to 15 years of in-office or what I call on-prem uh, work under your belt, then they it's a little bit more difficult to be able to get them all, just in based of the experience that we've had to a small degree and then other companies that I've spoken to. But uh, it can be done. It just requires a little bit more activity. Generally also as well, we hire for personality types. Mm-hmm. So people that are a little bit more introverted, which is great, for tech because we're all on probably the introverted side of the spectrum uh those people end up performing a lot better than extroverted people that need to talk to other human beings in order to uh to um to kind of get feedback and just be happy in their work so we'll find just in terms of psychometric testing introverts perform much better than uh than extroverts. I'm slightly on the extroverted s- uh, side of the scale. And it's quite interesting where I will need to kind of even go into a coffee shop two to three days a week, just to kind of hear other people talking. Um, and then I have uh, someone that I work with very closely, who lives three blocks away from me, is very introverted, and I might meet him every six months. Okay. We live three blocks away right. and he just, he does not want to meet other people. We meet on, on Skype every day, okay. but I haven't met him in person in three, four months. You know, it's just, those are the types of people that end up working in remote work positions yeah. really, really well. Okay. That makes sense. And a couple of things that you mentioned there, um, uh, that I'm sort of thinking of. So, uh, one, we talked about the sort of different ages, you, know, you mentioned 25 year olds, 40 year olds, 
what is your sort of viewpoint in, let's say, that fresh graduates with like no work experience? You know, do do you hire those? Do you see them working out? Um, often, like my own sort of like, you know personal viewpoint, I'm still trying to like work it out. But you know, we we hire the occasional grad, and I've seen it not only you know in our company and other companies, but w- when they haven't had that you know a uh, couple of years of sort of work experience, you know, whether it's been you know in the office or even necessarily just working remotely for other companies for a couple of years, you know, often when they work from home, you know, they're the ones that maybe are producing kind of less output or you're suspicious about their kind of output compared to, you know, the, the 30-year-olds or the 40-year-olds that have a bunch of, you know, experience and, the, you know, they're just kind of treating that work-from-home day as a, as, a, as a normal day, right? So what, right. what's your thoughts around graduates? And then we'll, we'll, we'll get on to uh, onboarding and how you onboard after that. Sure. So in terms of graduates, I have had historically a pretty difficult time, to be honest with you, of getting new people that just don't have job experience. And man, I'm going to sound super old when I say this, but like, I, I think it's like the sub 25 year olds have, they believe that they should get a lot more than what we're giving them. I've had experiences where I've had a sales guy that has worked for three months by his numbers. I know that he's not going to make it. We very clearly identify what his KPIs are. And then I've had a meeting with them where I'm going to fire them and their meeting, they start off by saying, well, I think I should get a raise. Yeah. And it's just like, what you did, you've closed a thousand MRR in 90 days. You've spent $15,000 and you've closed 1000 in MRR. You're the bottom salesperson in the team and you think you should get a raise. Well, yeah, I think I should get a raise. I'm like, what? It's just like, so that is a problem with, I think very young graduates, people that don't necessarily, um, yeah, I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, but like people that just, uh, think that they have, more that that they don't have anything to prove. And in reality, if you have no job experience, that's the only thing you should be doing. Sit down and eat shit for like two years, just grind it out, take the crappiest job, just get the experience of having work. And I would personally suggest that people do not go to post-secondary education. Uh, We've found the people that have floated to the top of our organization Uh, number one, I will take job experience over school. So Mm -hmm. if someone has a year of just stick to sales, a SAS sales versus a, um, undergraduate from Harvard, I will take the one year SAS candidate bar none just on paper. I'm going to take that, that other candidate. Uh, so get the experience under your belt as quickly as possible. And we've also found in our organization, people that have had, university experience uh generally don't raise through the organization because they just lack the ability to execute as much as the people that maybe they even have like a little bit of a chip on their shoulder where they have something to prove where they're they're starting at 20 years old and they're saying yeah i really want to get that job experience and get it in um you know if you're starting at 18 and you're 22 and you have four years of job experience inside of a SaaS business that is probably a 10x multiplier versus going to university, in my opinion. Uh, so stick with the job experience, get that in first, 
you can always go back to graduate school later, particularly in just the way that our education system is built. I know that uh, I personally dropped out of graduate school and it was one of the best decisions I ever made, but it ended up, it's, it, it seemed like a really bad decision at the time, particularly my parents were not very happy with, with me dropping out of my PhD, but by far one of the best decisions I could have ever made. I would do it again and again and again. Um, I might've even canceled undergrad if I was going to go back in time just to get those extra four years of experience. Yeah, I, I was I, I was close to uh, grow up, dropping out of graduate school and kind of wish I I, I did, but I didn't. Uh, but um, I, I I understand those uh, those points very well. And and, and just on onboarding, um, so you mentioned about GitHub's onboarding, but like how do you onboard um, you know new uh, new employees? Um, how do you get them to hit the ground sort of running in a remote? So yeah, we, we usually have uh, a compass metric. Other people call it KPIs. Uh, I don't like KPIs because there are multiple ones. I like to use a compass metric, which is one number. So there's one number that unpacks all the other numbers underneath it. So like I just got off a meeting with my SEO manager. We have cumulative domain authority as a metric for all of our SEOs. So that means the cumulative domain authority is added up between all of the backlinks that they get every single month. And we run it just like a sales team. So if you get a DA 20 link and you get a DA 80 link, that's a hundred cumulative DA points. And that's the metric that we use. And we, if a candidate can't hit uh, more than 300 cumulative DA within three months, we, we get rid of them. In, in terms of the onboarding process. Mm-hmm. So we literally have those metrics. We have all of the training to be able to hit those targets. We know that that training has produced 10, 20 candidates in the past that have hit those numbers. So we're pretty solid that our, tr- we know pretty securely that our training can actually produce those candidates or produce successful candidates. And then we literally just run them through the process. So a lot of people that we end up working with uh, we probably let go of about 25% of the candidates that we end up working with over a three month period. Mm-hmm. And um, it just kind of also too, with remote work, it takes longer to really get to know somebody. So you can, I mean, that's a, that's a bias towards remote work. You can really know whether or not someone's going to work out within a week. I would say probably when you're meeting them face to face, it's going to take three, four, five weeks if they're working remotely. And uh, so you want all those candidates in, you want to be able to just drive them towards that compass metric and then see whether or not they, they work out. And it's kind of a sink or swim type of situation. And for us, at least in our training process, a lot of candidates have come back to us that we've let go saying, thank you so much for putting me through this training process because I actually got three months of really good job experience. And now I'm running an agency as an example from what you taught me. So don't think of it as a negative and we pay them obviously for those three months. Uh, don't think of it as a negative. Just think of it as a, Hey, if you can't hit the numbers and you need to be very disciplined on that. I've made, I've let people get through because I've seen something in them that I'm really excited about. And I've been proven wrong the majority of the time. So we, we just have those metrics. What, what, what about sort of culture and I, I guess sort of reflecting on the experience with you, in your own company, is there anything that you do especially to, to keep these hundred people sort of united and bonded and positive, you know, are you doing virtual 
happy hours or do you have you know special emojis on slack or you know what is what is what is what is your things or what can you advise yeah on? yeah we have a couple of things so uh just with regards to the happy hour we have a we call it water cooler chat and pretty much every remote business has some iteration of this so we have a slack channel which is called water cooler and you can mm-hmm. talk about anything that is work or non-work related 90 percent of it is non-work related like did you see what trump did or uh did you see what, uh, you know, I think Miss Philippines won the, uh, the world's, world's pageant or something like that. And a lot of people, we have about 10 or 20 Filipinos and they were really excited about that uh, in the team. So anything that you can possibly talk about is in there. We also have an app called Coworker Coffee, which was actually built by someone that worked for us and then they actually spun it. They, they wanted to start their own business because we were doing this through Excel sheets. So now it just randomly takes two people in your org chart in Slack and sets up a meeting for them okay. every Friday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we randomly sit down and we just do a Zoom or a Skype call saying, hey, what's going on? What do you do? Because I mean, it, sometimes a developer doesn't know a designer, a designer doesn't know a salesperson and it just creates that rapport. And then every year we end up doing a team retreat. So everyone in the company flies into one place. Uh, Last year we did it in Bali. Uh, This year, I don't know where we're going to be doing it somewhere, but uh, get all the team members in one place. And usually that ends up being, in our experience, uh, two to three days, possibly a week. There are some companies that do it uh, for longer than that. Expensify actually has a two-month team retreat every year that they do, which I was blown away by, but you know, some people end up spending a lot of money on their team retreats. Uh, and that's where you really end up getting a lot of rapport. And it's a very interesting process that happens with new candidates that have been hired within the year. You can see a huge jump in their overall productivity before and after that team retreat, because then they know a lot of people at like within the organization, they're just able to kind of connect the human components of who they are. Like I didn't know how tall Alex was, or I didn't know uh, how much John really liked a Lord of the Rings or something like that. Like those little human components that you pick up in face to face that you just can't pick up virtually. Very cool. Both. I mean, I love the idea of the co-working app and, and, and just even, I, I guess the um, just the idea of, you, you know, two co-workers, you know, getting together, I think, you, you know, whether it's on a weekly basis, but, um, you know, just meeting 30 minutes, having coffee or virtual coffee or whatever, I think it's uh, uh, a very good thing for uh, for the businesses as often, even like, you know, company our size where we're just, you know, in and around 20 people, but, you know, there are certain, you know, uh, people within the organization that, that just don't work together uh, that closely on a day-to-day basis. So by doing something like that, you know, we'll certainly help them get to know, you know, their teammates, uh, a, a bit better, the ones that they don't work with often. Um, now just sort of conscious of time. Um, I, I want to ask a final kind of two questions, um, or, or actually we'll, 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 we'll make it three, but they can be, um, uh, one of them is a fairly short one, but uh, so the running remote conference you mentioned, uh, uh, very, uh, eye catching for me when I started to see the, uh, uh, information around this that uh, there's this uh, remote conference happening in Bali uh, looks like an ideal uh, destination for a conference tell us like you said it's a passion project why did you start it um, you know a little bit more information about it when is the when is the next one who should go 
Sure. So, and, and that's actually the most important question is who should go <laughs> because not everybody should go. Uh, so we ended up about a year and a half ago, two years ago, I was sitting with one of my operations guys and we were asking all of these questions about remote teams. And then we weren't really seeing any answers on the internet. Like there was nothing. Um, and it, it much like probably when I first started SaaS businesses, there was nothing on you know, churn or lifetime value or, you know, all of this stuff that is now just seems second nature to people. None of it existed 10 years ago. And I think we're at the same place for remote work. So no one really knows how to be able to build large remote teams. There was lots of information on like hiring your first virtual assistant or anything like that. But there was very little on like, how does Envision get to 700 people and have a billion dollar valuation and work completely remotely? Or how does GitLab have 400 people and work completely remotely or automatic or all these different types of companies? And there was no conference for it. The other thing that was a big problem is there's a ton of conferences on being a digital nomad. So like being a freelancer, working remotely, you know, living the world, traveling. But we actually discovered at least in the remote businesses that we run, the vast majority of people are not digital nomads. They just work from home. So I actually think that there's an interesting phenomenon happening where people will end up working for a year or two as a digital nomad and then kind of settle down and become full-time remote workers, which is an issue you could get into. Um, but it's a completely different issue, a uh, different podcast. So what we decided to do was just start the conference. And we said to ourselves, well, if we lose, I think we spent about a hundred grand on the first conference. If we lose a hundred grand, but we end up um, getting the information to get us to a hundred people, I think we were 60, 70 people at that time, then that's worth it. Like that's worth it for us. And so we ended up doing it in Bali because People love to go to Bali, and it's definitely a remote work uh, destination. And we had about 300 people show up for that. And what we chose uh, as attendees is people that actually manage remote teams. So if you don't manage a remote team, or if you're not a founder of a remote team, or if, or if you're a founder of an on-premise team that wants to go remote, you're the person that should come to the conference. If you're a digital nomad, it's probably not the conference for you. There's tons of other conferences that you can go to uh, that are really great that you should check out. For us, it's how to build and scale remote teams very specifically. So HR processes, all that kind of stuff connected to building really great remote businesses. And that was a little bit problematic. We had spoken about it <laughs> at the beginning of the conference. I felt really freaked out refunding people for their ticket particularly on a first-year conference, but it ended up working beautifully for us. Um, the companies that have come are really passionate about building remote teams, and that's something that I just wanted to surround myself with those types of people. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I think, uh, and again, as a, as a conference organizer, you don't want the wrong people, you know, at your conference and just like having the right positioning, you know, getting the, uh, the right people so you have that real kind of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, networking conversations. It just really kind of adds that, like, I don't know, that magic, that level that, that you, you need to kind of help you like have a successful like event and to help them, you know, get value out of it. Right. Uh, I think that's one of the keys. Um, um, you know, we always ask, uh, you know, how I guess stay healthy and sane. Um, you're, you're obviously doing, you know, a lot of traveling. You mentioned you know, at the beginning of the, uh, uh, the podcast, um, 
how do you stay healthy and sane, not only with all the traveling, but, you know, running a hundred person or, you know, two companies, a conference and, uh, uh, and a hundred people, you know, within the, um, uh, within the company. Uh, don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's probably the most important piece of advice that I can give to people. So do other things other than a tech startup. So I, um, <clears throat> I have other investments. I diversify, you know, my interests, um, do my girlfriend runs a, uh, a company that runs, uh, she gives out mermaid classes. So she teaches people how to be mermaids and she puts on these like, uh, mermaid fins and you swim around in a pool. And that's a really interesting business to kind of like consult on and advise on. And if things go wrong in the main business, at least there are other positive aspects that you can kind of jump to almost. So if you have a really bad month, then you can say to yourself, well, these other things are doing really well in my life. Uh, the other thing is just exercise. Um, I use a strong lifts five by five. I've been using that for the past two years. I have very bad back pain and doing squats every two days has totally removed that uh, problem from my life. And then other than that, like, just don't take life too seriously. I think that's probably one of the biggest learnings that anyone can have uh, running a high stress type of business where you're responsible for a hundred people's well-being. Don't take life too seriously. Recognize that everything is going to be just fine, particularly because we all run SaaS businesses. The beauty of SaaS is if you're doing 20,000 MRR and your churn is below 5%, you have escape velocity. Like you're not going out of business tomorrow. You might, you might not even be going out of business in two to three years. You have that time. So think about it, pause, then recognize strategically how you can make those next moves. And also too, don't think that you have to work 14 hours a day. You don't, uh, you also don't work four hours a week, <laughs> like <laughs> work. Uh, so I work, you know, I work eight, nine hours a day, like anyone else, but, um, I make sure that I take time out to be able to do things that uh, keep me sane. And I think it's probably been one of the biggest reasons as to why I'm successful uh, right now is the ability to have the time to travel and just have a fully featured life, <clears throat> which in an on-premise local business, you're kind of restricted to that singular space. And I think it significantly increases certain people's stress. Awesome. Awesome. Great uh, tips there. And where, Liam, where can people find you online? Just if you want to try out Time Doctor, go to timedoctor.com. Uh, best place to kind of get in touch with me where I'll be super responsive is on our YouTube channel. We're really trying to experiment with building out content. You can actually watch all of our talks from Running Remote last year, which is at youtube.com slash running remote. And uh, if you want to go check out the conference, runningremote.com. Awesome. Well, Liam Martin, um, uh, CEO of uh, uh, Time Doctor, uh, staff.com, um, you've been a great guest. Uh, we, we've covered uh, a lot here on uh, remote businesses. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Um, enjoy the rest of the time in Boston and, and soon to be Mexico and uh, not, not jealous uh, in, in the one bit. Um, but um, really great speaking to you again. Uh, thanks for sharing your lessons on, uh, on the SaaS Revolution show. Thanks for having me, Alex. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the SaaS Revolution Show and have learned some valuable lessons from Liam Martin. 
We have over 130 episodes now of the show that are as interesting to listen to whatever you're into in terms of gaining traction, growing and scaling your SaaS business. Hit the subscribe button if you haven't already to get access to all of them and make sure you don't miss any upcoming podcasts. Thanks for listening and your continued support and see you next time.